0: Well folks, here we go. Now, if you're listening to this, you're thinking, wait a minute, we started school weeks ago. Okay, but there are some folks, well, we don't start until after Labor Day. Yeah, depending on where you are in America, it's all over the lot, but it doesn't matter. Here we go for a new school year. And the question is, what will your yearbook be like this year? Well, that's what we're going to try to tackle once again in our fifth season of the Yearbooking Report podcast. My name is Scott Kesey. I've been involved with journalism for just over four decades. I've been a representative for Justin's Yearbooks. This is my 24th year now. And for me, journalism equals storytelling. That's it. That's why we make this product. If you want to make a better yearbook this year, that's all you've got to do. Tell more stories. And especially after the last two and a half years that we've all had, and the stresses and strains and troubles that teachers and students and lots of other folks have had in that time the idea of telling more stories recognizing more people has never been more important than it is right now so keep on listening and of course our accompanying video yearbooking report which is up on youtube keep on watching we plan to have more episodes this season than we've had in the past covering pretty much every facet of yearbooking that we can find And for this first episode of the new year, we're going to start with this one. I've been asking Stabs this question for many, many years, usually at the very beginning. I say, okay, guys, what are the two keys to a good yearbook? And I've gotten all kinds of answers. Oh, the cover. "Mm, Yeah, but no, that's not it. Pictures. Well, those are important, yes, but nope writing i don't hear that one very often but nope not that page designing well we want good looking pages yeah but no that's not either i've rarely had someone guess the answer i'm looking for the two keys to a great yearbook effort are organization and planning in other words if you will grunt work But I've noticed that those groups that do a terrific job of organizing their group, organizing their effort, planning out what they're going to do, planning out their book, as far in advance of the new school year as they can, they kind of make the roadmap, they make the plan, and then they run that plan. Those groups invariably have a great yearbook, have a better effort, fewer headaches, a lot more fun than the folks, I'll I'll say, they kind of wing it through the year. That's almost always a recipe for trouble. So to start a new year, we wanted to talk to somebody about organizing and planning, and we went, if you will, to the top. Recently, we talked with our friend, Sarah Nichols. Now Sarah is an outstanding journalism advisor from Northern California. Her yearbook from Whitney high school has probably won a pile of awards. She also does newspaper broadcasts, everything journalism. Sarah knows her stuff. And she is the longtime president of the Journalism Education Association. So we thought, okay, if we want to talk about organizing and planning, we know where to go. We went to Sarah. And she was kind enough to give us some time recently. Now, i tell you what, this is a bit longer podcast than we normally do. This is going to be about an hour because sarah has so much great information that she shares in this interview tell me tell you don't don't even waste time grab a pa- tablet grab a pen grab a pencil grab whatever you've got grab a computer take notes all right you're going to be taking notes during this one no doubt about it she is an outstanding expert when it comes to yearbooking and journalism and in this particular case organizing and planning so get ready to learn some new stuff First off, let's meet Sarah. Well, first off, we're going to welcome back. It's been a few years. We're going to welcome back our friend Sarah Nichols, who I'm not afraid to say is one of the top yearbook advisors in the world. All right, (laughs) I'll say that out loud. Sarah, welcome back to the yearbooking report. I appreciate your time.
1: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I don't don't know about anything else, but thank you.
0: (laughs) Folks, trust me, I have seen this lady's book. And I shouldn't say this, lady's book, because we're going to talk about organization here in a little bit. Your students do an amazing job with your book, which we'll talk about in a little bit, folks. If you ever get a chance to see this book, and we'll, you, you got to see it, all right. If you're if you're a Jostens school, ask your Jostens rep get a copy of Sarah's book. Now I don't know if they can do that; they'll try, but uh, see what you can do there. And we're going to talk about organization because here we are at the beginning of the school year. Now, Sarah, if I'm correct. Yeah, uh, We're doing this here in eh, late August or so. You're in school, right? Oh, yeah, we've
1: been back for a few weeks, yes.
0: A, f- a-, a few weeks? When did you start?
1: We started August 10th.
0: Oh boy, okay. Here where I'm at in Pennsylvania, some schools haven't started yet. Mm-hmm. I know in some states like New Jersey, New York, and so on, I-, I think it's a state law. They can't start until after Labor Day. Right. Would you like that? In California, would you like to start after Labor Day?
1: No, I'm really happy with the schedule we have. I I think it works, although you just you get used to what you have. You know, you make it work in in any cycle.
0: Okay. well, first, uh, we have a lot of questions we're going to ask. So, folks, uh, if you're listening, take notes. Trust me, you're going to want to take notes on this one. Okay. Um, for folks, maybe Sarah, that don't know you. Let's start with some background. Tell us something about yourself. If I'm correct, you were a Midwest girl, I think. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Ohio, and I was part of the yearbook staff at my high school, Centerville, Ohio, and then I did my undergrad at Indiana University. I got a bachelor's in journalism there, and then I got my master's degree also in Indiana at Indiana Westland, so I am only a California girl in these past 18 years, so I've considered myself a convert. I'm fully California at this point, but I did uh, grow up in Ohio and have my first teaching position in Indiana.
0: How'd you end up on the West Coast?
1: Uh, my husband was from California. So when it was time to take that step, he offered to move to Indiana. And I said, oh, no, no, no. I would totally prefer to move to California and <laughs> just never looked back.
0: <laughs> and if I'm correct, I think you're a sports fan, right? Sports Absolutely.
1: fan? Yep. Baseball, All right. golf, basketball, for sure.
0: Okay, hold on. Big 10 or Pac-10?
1: Oh, Big 10. Indiana. I'm a Hoosier. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, you're on the West Coast. I don't know. I
1: know. the Basketball really, it's not a thing here compared to, you know, going to a Big Ten school.
0: <laughs> Why journalism? Why did you decide, hey, this is what I'd really like to do?
1: Well, I think it's just such a powerful tool, you know, to make the world a better place. Our storytelling makes the world a little bit smaller, right? We can help people learn about things they don't know about and connect to each other and build empathy and understanding, stay informed, make good decisions, really care about um, something bigger than themselves uh, through the work as journalists and then through the um, media we consume, you know, as, as the audience. So it just, it does a lot of good and it's a lot of fun in the process.
0: Now, I assume everybody knows California is the most populous state in the union, right? Number one in population. And I don't know, Sarah, it seems I see a lot of California schools that are terrific with journalism. Is this some kind of California thing? Why are there so many great schools out where you are?
1: Well, I think there are great schools everywhere, and I think there's the capacity or potential for great storytelling or great journalism anywhere. But one of the things that we do have to our advantage is we have legal protection. So in California, California Ed Code 48907 protects students as the content decision makers and gives them full um, ownership over, you know, their First Amendment rights as as. Uh, Americans. So in the ed code, it actually says students can not only can, but students get to have to should whatever um, decide, you know, the stories to tell in their yearbooks or what to write about or what to photograph. And they can't have administrative censorship or be, you know, stifled in their student speech in that way. They're, They're protected in that way. And it kind of just builds in this foundational support that shows, hey, we really value students using their voices and we really value the creative process and we really value students deciding what their yearbook theme should be and the way that they should tell the stories of the year. And that might sound super obvious in, in some places because, you know, in California, that's been the law for 45 years, but in other states. They don't have that protection. And so it's harder to get students to find their footing or harder to to build up a strong program when they don't even really get to make the decisions themselves. Someone else is in a position of power or control over their learning process and over their storytelling. So I think that's really where it starts, is a a solid support um, from the First Amendment to um, give that, you know, protective legislation, empowering students.
0: Now that's interesting. I did not realize it was 45 years. That you yeah. have had this. And for folks that are really into scholastic journalism around the country, you'll, you might see this term, new voices legislation. And the idea is what Sarah just described being in other states. Sarah, I'm in Pennsylvania. We don't have this, at you least not yet. I no, think not
1: yet, but that's the key phrase, right? And you do have a new voices movement. You do have volunteer leaders and legislator um, advocates, lobbyists. Students, parents, school board members, you do have people who understand the value of um, student protection and that, you know, that importance of students being in those positions to, to report and write and, and produce and publish. So I really look forward to having Pennsylvania enact that legislation soon.
0: Now, do you know, all right, first of all, you're president of the Journalism Education Association, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. There are 50 states. Do you happen to know how many states have this. Do you know? Yeah, so
1: I, b- I believe right now it's 16. Sometimes I lose count, but I believe it is 16 on the books. Yeah.
0: So roughly, that's only a third of the states. The other two-thirds of the states, what happens? I mean, what, I see some of these, I'll call them horror stories every now and then. What what happens in these other places?
1: It varies from state to state. You might hear the, the phrase Hazelwood State, um, which relates to a 1988 decision Um, the Hazelwood um, case is what sort of took away the First Amendment rights that were um, codified or reinforced in the Tinker decision back in in the late 60s. And so the Hazelwood decision in the 80s was saying, you know, hey, this is a class or this is school sponsored. You have a school advisor or you're using school computers. They had all of these ways of saying that um, if it's done through school, um, then an administrator can say there's these um legitimate pedagogical concerns they can basically say that anything related to the school is the decision should be made by the school decision makers meaning the adults not the kids and so a hazelwood state means your administrators can make censorship calls they can Request um, to see pages of the yearbook before they're printed, or they can have a list of things students aren't allowed to write about, or they can even go so far as to dictate, you know, these are the colors that need to go on the cover, or this is what the theme has to be, or um, they could tell students to take a picture out, things like that. So prior review or prior restraint, imposing restrictions, things like that, um, those all could happen in states without legal protection. And, um, you know, just because they can, doesn't mean they do. There are some um, wonderful relationships and programs in, in states without the protective legislation. So, you know, it's not a, a, a guarantee. Those don't necessarily go hand in hand, but um, it means that administrators could do that and be within their, their legal bounds. And that's pretty tough, you know, and so it's hard for advisors to be able to build programs there. It's hard for kids to feel the sense of ownership. And in all honesty, it leads to a lot of self-censorship because kids are afraid of going through that process. And so they think, oh, it'll just be easier if we just show the principal everything or let them pick the idea because then we won't have to change it or we won't have to like go through this, you know, contentious battle to get what we want. So it leads to students, um, you know, changing their ideas regularly um, rather than, you know, following what their true vision is
0: all right so let's review here a little bit all right we're in your school in california let's say and you do yearbook you do newspaper you do a lot of journalism stuff let's say there's a controversial topic that the kids want to cover we'll say in the yearbook um and maybe there's an administrator he's not too keen on this how what happens where you are i mean how is this handled
1: Well, that's certainly a a specific scenario that each staff would experience differently. Um, If you mean specifically what would happen with my students and with me, um, you know, they always know why they want to do what they do. That's like a foundational question, you know, like, what's the story and how will I tell it? So they have a plan of why they think it matters and they have a brainstorm and sources and research they've conducted. And my role is very late in that game. Um, As the advisor, my role is, you know, play devil's advocate when I'm giving feedback on their work. So I might ask a question of, you know, tell me why you've included this or tell me why you didn't talk to this person. Um, I'm more like offering some questions for checks and balances to make sure that the quality of their reporting is really strong, that they don't have any holes or inaccuracies because of course it needs to be, you know, fact-based and evidence-based and have credible sources and things like that. But, uh, anytime they're doing like high caliber work, which, Fortunately, in our case, they are, you know, they work really hard. They've been trained and they care a lot about what they do. So when they, they're doing good work, then, um, then that's, that's sort of it. They go through that process and revise and edit and post and publish and promote their piece. And it may have um, some dialogue afterward. It might have some comments, um, might get people talking. You know, we've had many stories get, get people talking, especially in the past two to three years um, related to the pandemic, related to racial injustice, related to, um, gender and identity issues or hate speech or presidential elections. You know, we've certainly had a lot of feedback, even just about COVID policies or things like that. But, um, my role is to just, you know, be the guide on the side and, and coach and support them. And then also, um, unfortunately, but it's important too um, to provide them some some skills and training how to navigate um, whatever correspondence might take place afterward. For example, you know, a post on Instagram if it starts to get comments, then they need help learning how to navigate that. When you know teenagers with a smartphone, right? Like teenagers on Instagram, the comments could could get really messy pretty quickly, and so helping them to understand. Um, what their role might look like, and how they want to respond, or when they choose not to respond, or why they might take something down or why they might um, engage on on different levels with people, and how to have that respectful dialogue as part of the feedback loop you know that's a skill that really benefits them moving forward because you know there's a lot of divisive issues on the table, and not everyone has training in how to engage with respectful discourse, and so we want our journalists to be on like the good side of that right so so that's a little bit of how it plays out but if if you're wondering like if they have to ask permission or anything like that that's certainly not the case they're empowered to choose what they think is important for our audience and then how they want to navigate that and um, in the best case scenario they ask a lot of questions along the way because that's what i'm here for but if i ever see that maybe they aren't asking some key questions then i um, try to layer those in and just give them as much support as possible
0: I'm curious, do you keep track? You've been at this a while, you keep track of how many of your kids go on to careers in journalism. Do you keep track of that?
1: That's a great question. And no, I, I don't really track anything like that. Um, it's certainly not um the top goal for them to pursue a career in journalism or media. I know I have a handful who do, I have a handful who do at the college level, and then a few that are doing. Um, I, I think it's much more common in my case that they're doing a lot of spin-off careers. I have a lot of kids working in social media, a lot of kids working in marketing, a lot of kids working in public relations or advertising. The bottom line is they walk away knowing how to communicate really well. And so that benefits them in a lot of parallel industries, um, or honestly in, in 21st century skills, like in any industry, right? Like the better they can communicate, the more equipped they are for any, um, workplace. But, um, I have tons of, you know, lawyers, doctors, pharmacists, teachers, counselors, um, nurses, stay at home moms, you know, estheticians, police officers, like I have everything. And, um, for, I would say for, you know, 15 or 20 years, that's what I was really happy with. I was really proud that they were going out and being these highly productive citizens and and great people who had the skill set from journalism, you know, the ability to ask good questions and all the problem solving and communication stuff. But I would say in the past um, four to five years, I have shifted. Um, I do care more about making sure some of them go into journalism, because I think journalism matters more than ever. You know, that idea of, Truth and accountability, and um, focusing on facts and kind of fighting that misinformation, disinformation. Um, I think that's more important than ever. And so, since there is some media distrust or there's um, a lack of quality reporting and a lack of local journalism um, in some places, um, it is my job to make sure you know we kind of funnel into that pipeline to strengthen democracy. So, um, so maybe I should start tracking it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, do that, do that. I mean, folks, we're gonna move on to your book. I've been involved with journalism since I was a senior in high school, which sadly was over four decades ago. Sarah and I could talk about this for two hours, so we're gonna move on, okay? We'll get back to more with Outstanding Yearbook Advisor Sarah Nichols from Northern California coming up in just a moment. In this next segment, we get down to the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts of how her staff organizes themselves and plans and works their book every year. She has just, I think, some fantastic ideas, including things, uh, some new things that she's trying uh, in the uh, new year. Let's face it, the last couple of years has changed things in various different ways. Sarah's going to spill the beans, so get ready. That's coming up here in just a moment. Now, if you're at Joston School and somehow you still have not heard about our terrific Yearbook Plus digital feature, here at the start of a new year, now is the time. All right, this is... A really amazing innovation. What do we know? We know that virtually everybody out there now has a smartphone in their pocket or purse or somewhere. All right, they've got one and they enjoy using them. That's why they have it. So how can we make that work for our Yearbook storytelling effort? This is where Yearbook Plus comes in. Let's mention this right off the bat. Yearbook Plus is not an app because people do not want more apps on their phone. I don't, you don't, nobody does. And yet there they are. we got to get rid of them somehow. The ones you don't use. Yearbook Plus is not an app. We used to have an app. It clunked because most people, I don't want that on my phone. Okay, we learned the lesson. We went back to the drawing board and we came up with Yearbook Plus. Yearbook Plus is web-based, which means no matter what device you have in your hands today, a year from now, 10 years from now, the iPhone 48 or whatever turns up some point down in the far future or whatever, you'll be able to access yearbook plus two main features an opportunity for individual students with a headshot in your book to tell their own story with their own pictures up to 10 always moderated for safety all right no funny business but a chance for a kid to tell their own story a picture with them and their parents a picture with their dog picture with their girlfriend boyfriend a picture of them playing sports picture of them with their favorite hobby they're telling their own story that's one half the other half, all right, yearbook staff, all right, my example. Let's say uh, you've got the football spread, all right, I like football. And you have 100 pictures of football, good ones, 100 good pictures. But on your two-page spread in the book, you're not going to put 100 pictures down. That's crazy. You might put, you know, 25, 30. What are you going to do with the rest of them? Well, in a lot of cases, they get wasted. Nobody sees them. Or there's some clunky way that you try to share out those images so people can see them. Ah, uh-uh. yearbook plus you can now link digital images to any page of the book so that when your yearbook eventually comes out, people grab their phone, scan your code, which they put in the book, and then they can go to those various pages, scan images, and if there are images there that are linked to that page, boom, they pop up on their mobile device, no limit, 7,500, 200, Maybe just five, that's totally up to you. But now you have a chance to share out all those unused images that you couldn't do anything with. Oh, by the way, this is all free, no cost, easy to do, a tremendous digital innovation only from Jostens. So if I have piqued your interest, hope I have, contact your Jostens representative, ask them for more information about Yearbook Plus, like how do we get started? It's not hard, it's very simple. Doing it is not difficult at all, and then for the rest of the school year, you're gonna be doing some really cool stuff. A neat book, and then all this neat digital stuff, courtesy of Yearbook Plus, a Jostens exclusive. And again, if you don't work with Jostens, contact your representative anyway to say, what's this Yearbook Plus thing? They'll be happy to show you. It is amazing. Now, organization and planning of your staff. Are you ready to take notes? Here we go as we get back to our friend Sarah Nichols. Let's talk about your book. Um, first off, I gushed about your book earlier. It's terrific, it's awesome stories, great pictures. Just in general, tell us about your book.
1: Um, well, if, if you're okay, I'm going to make a slight amendment to that wording because it's, that's not what I would ever call it. It is definitely not my book. It is their book. It is 100% my students' book. It is just um, something that I get to advise. It is truly an honor, um, but it's theirs. So if we can think of it as their book, um, it's a little bit different every year, and that's how it should be, right, because the students change. So this year we have 36 or 37 students on staff and they are just now imagining a little bit of, a, of what it will be. But typically it has um, about 250 to 260 pages and there's a good portion of the book that's usually structured chronologically. We really like chronological coverage because it kind of matches up with you know how time works and it's logical to the reader to relive part of the, the year. Um, like in the book, the way that they experienced it originally, it just makes a lot of sense. You know, things are time-driven and calendar-driven. So we have a chronological format. We also have multiple specialty sections and other elements to the book. We find that that really engages readers. And from the staff member's perspective, it really gives them a lot of fun ways to spin out the theme and do a lot of layering and development and a lot of um, human interest stuff and a lot of special design techniques because they really like the design side. So they can do... Cool photo concepts and cool alternative coverage, and um, you know, elements that maybe don't fit into any kind of specific compartmentalized mode of journalism. Um, We have a really robust sports section because sports are really big at our school, and you know, it's important to know your audience, so you have to kind of bring the readers what matters most to them. So, sports is big, we have a club section, even though the club activities are interspersed throughout the student life, you know, chronological section, we do have like. Really uh, detailed reference areas like our our clubs and organizations. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of um, I would say layered high end design stuff, and I don't mean high end as if I'm you know like tooting their horn um, that it's like the best design in the world. But what I mean is they really like complicated things. So it's very common for them to find something from several sources of inspiration, and then some sketching, and then some kind of prototyping, and realize that they've created this incredibly complicated thing to produce and um i'm proud of that there's a bell ringing i apologize we'll have to edit this (laughs)
0: because you're at school right now yeah now i tell you what you you hit a perfect segue because our main topic here we want to talk about organization you mentioned right off the bat it's their book okay um uh in the over two decades that i've been a representative if i did a line chart you know, like a hierarchy of most yearbook staffs that I've encountered. It's usually the yearbook advisor at the top and then everybody, meaning the yearbook advisor is making all the decisions, giving out all the orders and the kids are essentially just going out there and doing what they're told. Why is it important to give students the leadership to do this stuff so that all you have to do is essentially be the supervisor? Why should folks do it that way?
1: Well, I think there are so many ways to kind of approach that philosophy. But in general, if you were a student, why would you want to be on yearbook staff if you didn't really get to make any of the decisions? um, I think that would be incredibly disempowering. It would just feel very worker bee-ish, right? So I think if we want students to really thrive, we want to put them in positions of um, decision making and, you know, give them autonomy and empower them to, to plan and envision and create and develop and decide things. And so. Um, That's how they learn best. That's how they get the most experience, right, to um, craft a plan and then maybe fail a few times or have a a few bumps along the way, but ultimately succeed in creating something they're proud of. Um, Not something that someone else has told them they need to make or a way to do things, but um, the the figuring out, the true learning is in the figuring out, right? So um, at the end, yeah, we have this incredible piece of history, right? We have this really valuable thing. Um, It's such a utility, um, like the service involved in creating a yearbook for our school. It's, It's so valuable for forever. But the experience for the learner is in the making of the book, and it's not the actual like making the spread, it's the decision making that leads to the making of the spread. So um, I really care about my students learning, and I want them to be able to problem solve, and I want them to grapple with like, well, should I do it this way or this way? Or what happens if I try this? Or, oh, I wonder if I did this. And so that's the best way they learn, and that's the best way they stay engaged, and that's the best way they kind of grow individually and, you know, in their teams or in their staffs. So I think that's the best reason or sort of like the best best pathway. And when those students are in the driver's seat, they just have so much fun that then um, they are likely to come back again and again and again. And from the advising side of things, it's certainly easier to work with a veteran staff and just train some incoming students each year rather than starting fresh, right? Then we get to Um, layer on those supports and help the veterans teach the rookies. And, you know, it's much easier to to manage such a massive year-long project when some of the kids have been through it before.
0: So your kids are very empowered. So what's your role? What exactly do you do?
1: Well, my job is to teach the editors so that their job is to teach the staff so I am training leaders, I'm taking their skills to the next level. I'm layering on like their skill sets as second or third or fourth year staff members, so that then they can like teach and guide and train and empower like the younger staff members to, um, to execute. Um, so I, you know, help editors stay on track. I help them understand big picture in terms of deadlines and uh, budgeting and um, quality control. I kind of teach them strategies for, um, not only project management, but people management, right? Like I'm helping them hone their craft as leaders and as managers, and those things aren't necessarily the same. So, you know, understanding the dynamics of the people in the room and how to motivate them and how to really know them and support them individually. And then again, like helping them be better writers and better photographers and better designers so that their work continues to grow while they're busy, you know, training and, and um, coaching up these younger students.
0: All right. So what is the What is the leadership structure of your staff or the editorial structure? I mean, I've again, I've been at this a long time and I've seen different versions and some work. Some are interesting. What is yours? I mean, what what are the roles the kids have and how, how does that put together?
1: Well it's a little different every year um, partly because the students change you know to some degree every year and their strengths or their personalities or their skills are different you know different group of kids but um, also I invite those returning leaders to help share with me what they envision and what changes we should make and you know is there a job that that we don't have you know, a, t- a task that needs to be done or a role that we want someone to play that we didn't have in our structure last year. You know, so we do make those revisions as we reflect on our practice. But in general, um, you know, it's a student-led publication, so editors-in-chief at the top. And uh, more than one, I, I don't believe in having just one editor-in-chief. I think it's uh, too massive of a responsibility. And it kind of, um, you know, I wanna set kids up for success and they're really busy. They have AP classes. They have jobs. They have sports. They have other things that matter to them, and I really value that as a high school experience. I think that the more uh, well-rounded and you know versatile and involved and engaged they can be as teenagers while they get this high school experience, like I want that. I don't want a kid who only participates in our program. So by having a couple editors in chief, then they can kind of um, support each other at different times or kind of you know um, balance that out and maintain like a healthy life balance. So I typically have two or three editors in chief, although over time I have had up to four because our students aren't just producing the yearbook. They're also producing the news website and the news magazine. It's one group of students doing all the media. So you can see where that might be different for a staff that's just producing a yearbook. They might not um, want as many positions or need as many in that, in that framework, but we have editors in chief at the top. Um, in many years, I also have a managing editor. That's a really like deadline driven, um, Organizational position. Um, we have, you know, leaders or editors in copy and photo and design. In most years, um, some years those roles are assumed only by the EICs. But some years, I have, you know, it kind of just depends on kids' skill sets. But um, we have, you know, social media editors, business managers, you know, dealing with the marketing and sales and tracking all of the financial side of the yearbook, which is so valuable for them to learn that. In addition to their roles as journalists. And then um, sports editors, um, the student life editors, clubs editors, um, portrait editors—you know things like that. But we added a few new positions this year, so I wanted to get a chance to share those with you because I'm pretty excited. Um, so this year we we added a director of brand management. And I think that that'll be especially powerful in helping them kind of manage our brand on campus. That's like the visibility um, with our logo and all of our shirts and all of the ways that we present ourselves publicly, managing our reputation and kind of marketing who we are, Not, not necessarily marketing the yearbook, but sort of like marketing ourselves. Um, which includes recruitment and retention and strengthens relationships and kind of gets that visibility out into the public, which can be really helpful in um, kind of selling the value of what we do and building trust in the media and, you know, like um, engaging with people about the significance of what a yearbook looks like, things like that. And then another new position that we have that might sound similar at first, but it's called director of campus relations. One of the biggest things I like to focus on with my students is the value of relationships in all we do, but especially in our work in journalism, you know, building relationships and building trust and having contact people who respect us and value what we do, we can have a good partnership. So um, the director of campus relations is a person who coordinates our relationships with administrators, with teachers and staff, with our athletic director and coaches, um, with some of our big groups on campus that represent um, people of color and like diverse sort of underrepresented populations. So for example, we have um, black student union, we have an Asian um, youth leadership society. And those were two relatively new groups who are focused on sort of like outreach Um, related to some diversity, equity, you know, belongingness issues on staff. And so we want our liaison to work with those groups and really maintain positive relations, make sure that our coverage is representative of the issues that they are engaging in, make sure that our staff is welcoming and has like um, people from those groups represented on our staff, you know, that we really value diversity. Um, But it's also just making sure that um, we have, like good communication, right, with our student council or student government leaders and club presidents and the captain of all the sports teams and things like that. So the director of campus relations will make sure that everyone thinks of us when they're having an event or um, when, you know, like news releases or things we should cover or, um, you know, hey, come take pictures at this. We're doing this. You know, we just want to be on everyone's call list. We want to be like on their go-to text thread or whatever so that we can tell their stories and so that we can represent them. And so having someone dedicated to that, I think will be a a true game changer. You know, we have a big school and we have a, a lot we're doing in our publications and we wanna just keep doing it better. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. It's a brand new role for us.
0: Now for folks listening, does that sound like a business? Yes, it does. All right. Mm -hmm. You're, I think, Sarah, I think maybe, maybe I'm thinking, especially brand new yearbook advisors. They're brand new. They're green as grass. They don't realize this is a business. In fact, I think a lot of schools, this might be the biggest business outside of the football team or something like that. you are nodding your head, right?
1: For sure. That's um, it. We are bigger than the football team. Yeah. And that varies from place to place, but you know, our our publication is, you know, $115,000, $120,000 operation each year, and, you know, the student body doesn't necessarily know that, but the students in our program are learning, um, you know, how to make that work and how how to really uh, make good decisions to align with their goals, to to do what we want to do.
0: Can I be your Jocelyn's representative from the East Coast? Can I do that? Is that possible? <laughs> Who is your representative? by the way?
1: Jeffrey Williams. Jeff is amazing. We're, we're very happy to get a chance to work with Jeff.
0: He's a lucky guy. All right. That's <laughs> cool. One more question on this as okay. We've started a new year. Here we go. As the year progresses, cause it lasts, you know, nine months do, from an organizational ch- standpoint, do things ever change or do you set the table now and just run it? Or do sometimes things happen where you have to make adjustments?
1: Oh, I think we have to make adjustments like every five minutes. <laughs> we are always making adjustments. We have, um, even just the editors in chief and I, you know, we have like an agenda, we have a, a Google doc of our plans. We have a calendar. And, um, one of my downfalls is I kind of over plan and I schedule more than what is humanly realistically possible. So we're always kind of tinkering with that and shifting something over to the next t- day or like saying like, Oh, we need to shorten this. Cause we need more time for this. and um, that's you know, that's a good life skill too. Right. But yeah, we, we do pivot regularly. Um, We tweak and update and modify our plans. Um, I've, I've had a unique experience. Um, I would say it's a fortunate experience that in 24 years advising or 23 so far, this is year 24. I've never had a staff change themes. Um, We have always stuck with the original theme that we Um, started out the year with, which I think is great. Um, I know some staffs face that. Um, And I think maybe that's just because I do engage them in a pretty dialed in process to help them arrive at their theme. So we don't come to that decision lightly. And so um, once they lock it in and they have like figured out that it's going to work and they know how they want it to work and why they want it to work that way, um, then we just kind of run with it. So the design piece evolves I would say we usually hit our stride around December, meaning that some of the stuff they're gonna make in the next couple of weeks, it will not stick. And I think that's great. Um, that's one of the things I've really been sharing with other people around the country this past couple of years, especially the past year, is to embrace this culture of revision. Um, it's a really powerful skill that students need to develop that I think maybe in COVID times, they got used to just doing Zoom school and turning things in on Google or some other method where their teachers didn't really offer much feedback. And, you know, no, no criticism there of teachers, but everyone was kind of just figuring out how to survive. And so students weren't really pushed or challenged with their work. It was like, did you do it? Yep. Did you turn it in? Yep. Okay, you're good. And so, um, our work suffered and our work ethics suffered and the caliber of what students were producing or creating just really dropped. You know, we saw a decline because no one forced them. And I say forced, no one really like pushed them and motivated them to to revise, right? So the ideas were just kind of like lackluster. So with my students, I really embraced the culture of revision and I helped them to see that just because they did something, it doesn't make it great yet. And that that's okay. Like, it, like your first or second or third idea are like part of that process. They're really, really important. They're instrumental in getting us to the end result that is this great design or great story or whatever, but you have to like do the work to get from A to Z. So um, embracing that culture of revision and working together. So if, if my students are making something in these next couple of weeks, um, that's going to lead us to their next version and their next one and that's probably the one that our readers will see in the yearbook and um that's kind of a fun you know like you can see the before and after you can see the time lapse of how it plays out um but that's a big piece of it i would say
0: sarah that's a very interesting opinion and i agree 100 percent. first off it sounds like a business It does.
1: Yeah. Real real world skills. That's why every student needs to be part of their yearbook staff, right?
0: (laughs) I mean, some you know, if you're a successful business, sometimes you've got to be nimble. You got to make some moves and changes, especially in the last two and a half years. Oh my goodness. That that sounds, I mean, your kids sound like a a perfect model. Yes. That's that is exactly what you should do.
1: I don't know if if we could ever say we're a perfect model, but we sure, we sure give it our best shot. We we know why we're doing what we're doing, and I think that's, of course, a key piece as well. So even when it doesn't work, we're we're sure about the approach. You know, it's like we believe in it, and um, I love when students get to see their work. You know, it. Um, you can say this to people, and until they've experienced it, they kind of like don't believe you. But you know, to hold a book in your hands. Um, like for those students to to touch the cover and run their fingers across the grain or to like feel the shine effects and UV coating and like to crack the spine and open it up and, and touch the pages for the first time. Um, they are crying, they are squealing, they have goosebumps. They're just like so crazy over like that sense of pride. And, um, it makes every single thing that led to that worth it times 10. Right. Um, and you tell students that when they're entering staff for the first time and they don't really get it. Um, but then, you know, nine months later, like the payoff, right? Um, so I wish we could simulate that in other ways. Um, you do just have to wait that delayed gratification, but it is so cool to watch them see their book for the first time.
0: And for any newbies listening, here we are at the beginning of a new school year. So you're thinking, oh my gosh, nine months. Oh, that's so long. You know, the old, how do you eat an elephant riddle? Well, you eat it one bite at a time. And when you're done, it's great. It's great. We'll get back to our final segment with Sarah Nichols, outstanding yearbook advisor and president of the Journalism Education Association in just a moment. In fact, in this last segment, we're going to talk about student journalism, why it's important, some information about JEA. Sarah and I are both members. We think anybody who's serious about student journalism really needs to be a member. And so we're going to share a lot of great information about student journalism coming up here in just a moment. Now, depending on when you're listening to this school, I'm assuming underway, hopefully you're already out taking pictures. Remember, pictures, number one element of the yearbook. That will never change. I don't care what gadgets, gizmos, goggles, or whatever people come up with in the future. People want to see pictures of their school year. Have you started yet? Now, if you're sitting there thinking, uh, we haven't quite gotten around to that yet. Mm, It's time. And yeah, if you've got fancy cameras, you know, SLRs and so on, that's great. The newer phones, I don't care, iPhone, Samsung, whatever, take dynamite images. Hopefully in your school, kids are allowed to use their phones, or at least your yearbook staffers are allowed to use their phones. If not, make a note, go down to the principal's office, ask for permission, and make your case Kids, your kids don't have time to go running for a camera if something happens during the school day. You know, some neat project in science class or somebody does a neat speech or something in uh, English class. Or, uh, you know, some, uh, there's some live online guest and, in a class for social studies or something like that. And you want to remember that for the yearbook. You don't have time to go running for a camera because by the time you would get back, probably done and over, Right. But if you can whip out your phone and take pictures, boom, perfect. What some schools do very simply, they make an agreement, okay, kids, this is what they can and can't do, are yearbook staffers. And usually they have some type of a press pass, and maybe that's in their pocket or they wear it and so on. So that if they want to take pictures during a class, they show that to the teacher to say, look, I'm just taking pictures for yearbook. That's it. Most teachers will say, okay, no problem, go ahead. And they can snap some very valuable uh, snapshots that then can hopefully either be placed in the yearbook, maybe yearbook plus, we talked about that earlier, or in some other ways. Either way, here's a very simple rule. There is something going on in your school every single day. Something. Some class, some group, some club, some sports, something. We need to be getting fresh images literally every single day. The more the merrier. That will lead to a much better yearbook with much better coverage of more people. And that should be one of our ultimate goals. So again, if somehow you've got some phone rule in your school, take my advice. Just go down to the principal, give them a very you know, common sense argument. We really need some help here. I think most schools will say, um, okay, if we can trust your yearbook staff, we'll let you cool. We'll let you go. All right. Do that really important every single day get some fresh pictures because it leads to better student journalism and we're going to talk more about that in our final segment as we get back to our friend sarah nichols all right in our wrap-up here let's talk about journalism in general okay you are the president of the journalism education association why do we get the feeling you have this job for life (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, no, as a matter of fact, I am closing in um, on the final stage of my second three-year term. So um, in, in early 2023, a new president will be elected. But yeah, it has been an incredible experience these past um, five and a half years. And you know, I was vice president for six years before that. So I consider it a huge honor to have played just a small part in what JEA is doing and how we're able to impact scholastic media education.
0: Now, wait a minute. Is there a term limit rule somewhere?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we have a two-term limit and our terms are three years long.
0: But you could run in three years.
1: I could. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not telling you to, but I, my observation, and I'm a JEA member, of course, so are you, is, you know, I see some of your stuff on the so-called listserv, which is the email list. And uh, Sarah, I would say you are universally respected uh, across the board, Yearbook, newspaper, broadcast, doesn't matter. So whoever's going to be taking over for you, whew, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank that's a, you. That's a full plate. Thanks.
0: All right. Now, again, these last two and a half years have been, oh my gosh, um, we'll, we'll leave that alone. Your opinion, has student journalism, okay, not, not journalism in general, all right, we're not going to go down that road, has student journalism changed at all? in these last let's say three years now you're kind of nodding your head yes or no and if it has changed I mean
1: how How? well I think I think journalism will always be changing and uh, it needs to be and it should be because it's a response to what our communities need and so um, as everything evolves we kind of like respond to it and um, we try to get in front of it but really our job is You know, it's like part proactive, part reactive, if we're doing a good job reporting on our communities. But I would say real specifically, journalism has changed um, in a couple key ways, um, aside from the stuff we don't want to get into, you know, like the world that we have experienced in these years, um, you know, all of that aside, it's really um, student journalism has changed because of TikTok. And, um, you know, we could kind of laugh at that or um, we could say like, oh, I'm not on TikTok or oh, I love TikTok, but it absolutely has changed what we do and um, what students care about and how students engage and the importance of video in our world. Um, So there's that. Um, But really through COVID, um, you know, I like to look for the good. And I would say one of the silver linings or a positive outcome of the COVID era is we've really learned to double down on the things that work and get rid of the things that don't work. And we've really learned how to prioritize the ways that we produce content, or um, we've found new ways of gaining like um, information, or crowdsourcing, or engaging with people. You know, it has built for students this super, super uh, resilient, efficient um, skill set because they they had to battle through in order to make a yearbook. Right? They were at home in their bedrooms on these devices, isolated and separated, and yet they felt value in telling stories and in you know remaining um tied to their school community and to you know building the or maintaining the tradition of a yearbook at their school that longevity and that history and they saw it was actually more important than ever since nothing else was happening so they went through like every extra step to make that happen and it made them stronger so um so we have that we have the strength and the resilience but we also have the ways of doing it for example you know half the world hadn't heard of zoom before but now we realize well we could use zoom to do interviews anytime we want not just in a pandemic and oh we could we could put those photos on google drive and share them we don't have to put them on the school computer and oh i could I could do this. And oh, this is faster. We used to do this. Now we could do it this way. And oh, we used to waste so much time printing that. But now that we've been at home for a year or two years, we don't have to print that, you know, just these little efficiencies. Um, It made everyone really savvy. Like everyone got comfortable with remote co-working, right? And so you had students before who felt very tied to a physical location and a set of practices. Like I come into the yearbook room and I put my thing here and I walk over here to get this. Well, we don't need any of that anymore. And so it's just opened a lot of doors in terms of like the functionality and efficiency of what students can do. And that in turn has changed journalism. Um, I think that in particular, yearbooks opened up a lot of possibilities for crowdsourced photos and willingness to accept pictures taken on cell phones, a willingness to accept photos that were taken by people you've never met before, but they want to contribute. They want to upload. They want to send or share or attach. That's great. We should be doing that anyway. Um, We see a lot more illustration, uh, which is wonderful. There's so many ways to tell stories. And of course, photos are going to be at the forefront. Um, I think the photo piece is just like you know core component of the yearbook that's people want to see those pictures and they want to see good pictures they they want you know strong storytelling photography where you understand light and exposure and you have a better camera than than not right but it has opened up these doors um of what a yearbook might look like and um, we got rid of some of the traditional elements because we had to and then we realized oh that was kind of cool we needed to get rid of that that was kind of we were done with that we we should have let go of that sooner And I love to see stuff like that. I love to see that evolution and um, people letting go and just, um, you know, kind of tinkering, exploring, experimenting, and um, it becomes so much more relevant when when we do that. So I'm excited by those changes.
0: All right, I'll bite. What does your staff do with TikTok? I figure they're doing something.
1: (laughs) What is it? Uh, We we don't actually, we don't do TikTok. So um, we have a lot of other social media. Our main social media that the students focus on most heavily is Instagram at details yearbook. But, um, we currently don't use TikTok, and that's really because I asked them to focus really heavily on what they choose to do and make sure that they have the capacity to do it well. And so far they haven't felt like that was high enough on the priority list to, um, you know, double down and, and go for it. They, they also feel like, um, they don't really see a a need that it would fill for our staff and a way that they would want to do it journalistically. Like they all like TikTok. Many of them use it as consumers. Some of them use it for posting, you know, like their own content. But um, they don't really see it meeting like a journalistic purpose in our program right now. And uh, I'm okay with that. I mean, I think it would be fun. I I hope that maybe they kind of explore it moving forward. I think there's a lot of untapped potential, but those are their decisions to make. And so they have some other priorities right now. And I really admire when they like set those goals and then just dig in on attacking those goals without distractions and without um, spreading themselves too thin. So, um, you know, knowing when to say yes and when to say no is a big part of what high school students are learning. And, um, So right now they've said no to TikTok so they can say yes to some other things.
0: Hmm, That's very interesting. Okay. All right. All right. Now, free plug alert. All right. Um, If you are a yearbook advisor that has even a a half decently solid interest in student journalism, you need to become a JEA member. Mm -hmm. Sarah, what are the benefits of being a JEA member?
1: Well, they're probably longer than this podcast will run. I can talk about it. Do the Cliff
0: cliff Notes version then, all right? Yeah,
1: in general, you're connected to your professional learning community or PLC of other people who truly get what you do. Um, You know, sometimes you're on an island at your school. I mean, you probably have only one yearbook advisor, but across the country and even around the world, there are thousands of other people doing what you do. So this taps you in and connects you to that network. And then along with that, it provides you with curriculum that is a nationally developed and vetted curriculum for all aspects of the yearbook process and all other types of journalism too. So writing, reporting, photography, law and ethics, design, leadership and team building, all of those pieces. And then you're eligible for recognition, contests, awards, and honors. And you might think, you know, like, oh, I would never be good enough for that. Or, oh, I'm not interested in that. Um, We know that many people are really humble and they're not seeking recognition or looking for the spotlight. But it is wonderful to be recognized for your great work. And sometimes it really adds that value that you need with your administrators or with parents to to help them to see that you're really great at what you do and you deserve that. Um, We also have a certification program, as you know, being a CJE. So advisors can um, be certified as a journalism educator and then they can advance and become a master journalism educator. And those are professional development programs that are limited to our members. Um, We have a mentoring program, which is wonderful. It pairs a newer advisor with a veteran advisor for a really close personal two to three year relationship where you just get constant support and really personal interactions to kind of figure things out and and learn and, and have a supportive relationship from someone who's been doing it for a while. So I would say that the curriculum and the mentoring and the support system and the awards and recognition are um, some of the biggest and most obvious benefits to any um, journalism advisor. You know, anyone who's new to yearbook all the way up to going into their 40th year advising yearbook, there's a little bit of something for everyone. It's just a really rich community of wonderful people at different levels of experience who all just want to be um, good at what they do and want to do what's best for kids and um, want to be part of something. So it's, it's a really neat group.
0: Folks, seriously, join. All right. Join. It's amazing. Uh, uh, Okay. I should have looked this up. For a teacher, for a year, is it $60, Sarah?
1: I believe, yeah. You can go to ja.org, and um, we have a tab that lists the different types of membership and the different rates. I'm actually a lifetime member, which is a wonderful deal if you think you're going to be in this for a while. Um, You can, you know, join a lifetime membership, which I somehow had the good fortune to do, like eight or nine years ago. So it has, you know, more than paid for itself.
0: I was a little heartbroken, all right? Last November, the fall convention, which you guys do conventions spring and fall, April and November, was supposed to be in Philadelphia. I know. Right on my doorstep. I even signed up to do a session and then stupid COVID shows up. Boom, down it goes. But let's see, the one this November is in St. Louis.
1: That's right. So November 10th, And we'll be there, we're really looking forward to that, the 10th through 13th. And then in April, we'll be in San Francisco, I believe it's the 19th, 20th and 21st, or 2021 and 22. You can find that at ja.org. There's an events tab that has the conventions, or we also have convention specific websites. So you can go to fall.journalismconvention.org and you can go to spring.journalismconvention.org if you want specific information about this fall in St. Louis or next spring in San Francisco. Um, You know, thousands of people all coming together to learn and grow and compete and network and celebrate, and it is just um, high energy. You just learn so much, and you get to see other people who really care about what they're doing just like you, and um, it's just the, the energy of that really lights a fire under students and they love it.
0: Really tremendous uh, opportunity. If you can get there a lot of, you know, you get a lot of journalism professionals, newspaper, you know, TV and so on that you're able to get to these events. It's amazing. It's amazing. If you can go get there. All right. Get there. Sarah, this has been great. I really enjoyed talking to you. You shared so much great information there. And as we all get this new year launched together, hopefully that stupid little virus is not going to, you know, get in the way again, so to speak. But uh, I really appreciate your time today and uh, keep leading. All right. I, I realize <laughs> you have to give up the position, but don't keep leading because you're awesome.
1: Thanks, Scott. And I do I do plan to be as involved as I can. I I really, I love the people doing what we do, right? We have made some lifelong connections. And I know that there are just so many good people in our yearbook community, especially and um, in particular in our Jostens family that um, those relationships are forever. So um, it's it's fun talking about this kind of stuff and it's fun to get to meet people face-to-face so maybe someone listening today will get a chance to introduce themselves you know, at a conference session or a convention or a workshop somewhere and I, I love those moments so don't worry, I'm not going anywhere
0: <laughs> Perfect, perfect. Thank you very much once again.
1: Of course, thank you
0: A big thank you again to our friend Sarah Nichols who uh, I gush, okay, I do She is one of the top yearbook advisors in the world. She really knows her stuff. I mean, to be a kid on her staff, that's a pretty lucky kid because not only are they doing really cool stuff, they are learning a lot of things along the way that they will absolutely use in other classes in college on the job when they get to that point and elsewhere. They are learning skills, usually called real world skills or 21st century skills that they're absolutely gonna use elsewhere. And there's another reason why we do yearbook: Make it an educational effort. Kids will be learning things that they will absolutely use in other places. There is no doubt about it. We've got a lot of great material coming up this season in the yearbooking report and folks, We hope you keep on listening. We really appreciate you being here. And thanks again for listening to the Yearbooking Report podcast.